When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Finding Holy podcast is where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. And you'll get to hear everyone's laundry routines. To listen to the Finding Holy podcast, go to aahales.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Let us live and move and have our being and deal with men as if a dying, risen, interceding, and coming Christ were continually before our eyes. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon was published in London in 1880, but it was likely preached closer to 1850s or 1860s in in Helmingham. Uh, It was preached by John Charles Ryle. Uh, He's also known as J.C. Ryle. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God. One day J.C. Ryle was going into church late, and he'd only been going to church for a little while. When he came in, he heard that verse from Ephesians 2.8, and he was converted on the spot. He said something in his heart told him that it was time to be a believer. And in the sermon we'll be listening to, he explains why it is that people don't believe and how we as Christians can help them to believe. Troy, J.C. Ryle, born in 1816. Uh, he lived a good long lift, died in 1900. Uh, he, he definitely was raised in what we would call a, a privileged household. His dad was a wealthy banker, um, and he was sent to the, the best private schools. He ended up going to Oxford for college, and he did very well in school. But around 1834, uh, he became very sick with some type of an illness in his chest. And it's probably you know the first time that he really faced difficulty in life. Joel, up until this illness, he was planning to go to Oxford and become a politician. But when the doctors couldn't help him and he was beginning to fall behind in school, it was then he reached out and started reading his Bible and attending church. And that was where he would hear Ephesians 2.8. Now, not long after this part of his life, his father's bank would then fall apart too. And he would no longer have the money he would need to succeed in politics. He described it at the time as Uh, In his own words, we got up one summer's morning with all the world before us and as usual and went to bed that night completely and entirely ruined. He would call this the darkest chapter of his life. And uh, but even his own words later on, he would say, if I hadn't come to my ruin, I would have never preached a single sermon or written a track. There's also something else to, you know, another aspect to his conversion story. And it was a new church that came to his town. It was a church that preached the gospel. J.C. Ryle would, you know, would later say that other churches in his town didn't, didn't preach the gospel, but this specific one did, and it was mocked for it. J.C. Ryle, uh, you know, visited the church almost as a contrarian, you know, just to show people that they couldn't tell him where to go or, or what to do for the church service, but the Lord ended up using it because the gospel was being preached there. And uh, finally, in addition to that, he he was given a few good books uh, around that time in his life that really impacted his life, including one by John Newton, who uh, is the subject of a previous Revive Thoughts episode. 
so even though we started the episode giving you the verse that he heard that caused him to change and see the error of his ways, there was a lot of groundwork involved between people giving him books, him being struck sick, and a new church preaching the gospel that all seemed to be a part of that uh, seed planting process. So from here on, from his being saved at this point on, his plans to become a politician are over, and he goes into a life of ministry. He got moved, um, and that was in 1841. He got moved to a different church in 1843, and from here, he would start to publish tracts and books, and his preaching career really started to take off. He was a very busy minister. He would visit 60 families a week, and when scarlet fever hit the area, he would actually go from patient to patient, forcing them to drink tea and to eat their medicine. Ryle was hardworking not only in the ministry, but also in his own home. His first wife ended up dying after having one child and being married about three years. He, he remarries a second time to a, a woman named Jess Walker, uh, who struggles with Bright's disease, a kidney infection, and it made her unwell most of the time. And they did end up having four more children together, uh, but she was too sick to take care of him, so Ryle was was, was taking care of all the children in addition to his ministry. Uh, and he actually ends up eventually writing a popular book called The Duties of Parents. While he was a minister, one of the things he felt called to do was to reach into the uh, inner city, the urban cities in the area. He would help open many churches and encourage mission halls. He was actually a pioneer in missions to the cities because he saw them as the perfect place for the gospel to go exactly because that was where people were. Eventually, he became a bishop in Liverpool in 1880. Charles Spurgeon, who also preached at the same era in the same time, in the same area as him, uh, described J.C. Ryle as an evangelical champion, one of the best and bravest men. There's a lot of irony in the life of J.C. Ryle. He did not actually want to become a minister. He felt that he had to do it because it was the only job he really could afford to do. He had this really amazing education, and he would continue to read theology all his life. He was very intelligent, but he would actually become famous for writing gospel tracts, which were basically, they were created for a penny. They were pretty much the lowest form of literature in their day. It would almost be like a famous theologian becoming famous for writing spammy blogs or something like that. But he did it hoping that they would be given to ordinary men and that their hearts would be changed. This sermon, Unbelief a Marvel, he, he talks about why men don't believe. And as someone who had a later in life conversion experience and, and remembered it well and remembers being an unbeliever well, and also as someone who has made it their sole aim to evangelize the gospel, to share the gospel with as many people as he could, in a lot of ways he's the perfect person to tell us what it is that causes people not to want Christ in their life and how we as Christians can help change their minds. He marveled at their unbelief, Mark 6, 6. The text which heads this page is a very remarkable one. Of all the expressions in the four Gospels which show that the Lord Jesus Christ was very man, none perhaps is more startling than this, that he who was born of the Virgin Mary and had a body like our own should hunger and thirst and weep and rejoice and be weary and suffer pain. All this we can, in some degree, understand. But that he who was truly God as well as truly man, he in whom dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, he in whom were hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, he who knew what was in man, 
that he should marvel at anything here below may well fill us with astonishment. But what says the scripture? There it is, written in plain words, which no ingenuity can explain away. He marveled at their unbelief. In handling this subject, I do not propose for a moment to discuss those deep and mysterious articles of the faith which lie at the foundation of Christianity. If I attempted this, I could add nothing to what masters of theology have already said and should probably leave the subject where I found it if I did not darken counsel by words without knowledge. What I wish to do is to say something practical about the general subject of unbelief. It must be an astonishing thing. Even if our Lord Jesus Christ marveled at it, it must be an important thing when we hear and read so much about it in the present day, and I will try to make a few plain remarks upon it. First, let us consider the nature of unbelief. What is it? The word so translated will be found 12 times in the New Testament, and always, so far as I can see, with one meaning. In its fullest sense, of course, it exists only in lands where men enjoy the light of revelation. In heathen lands, where there is little known, there can be comparatively little unbelief. It consists not in believing something which God has said, some warning he gave, some promise that he held out, some advice that he offers, some judgment that he threatens, or some message that he sends. In short, to refuse to admit the truth of God's revealed word, and to live as we did not think that word was to be depended upon, is the essence of unbelief. Unbelief is the oldest of the many spiritual diseases by which fallen human nature is afflicted. It began in the day when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and brought sin into the world. They did not believe what God had told them would be the consequence of disobedience, and they did believe the tempter, saying, You will not surely die. Unbelief ruined millions in the days of Noah's flood. They would not believe the great preacher of righteousness when he warned them for 120 years to flee from the wrath to come. Unbelief slaughtered myriads in the day when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by fire from heaven. When righteous Lot called on his sons-in-law to escape for their lives, he seemed as one who mocked. Unbelief kept Israel wandering 40 years in the wilderness until a whole generation was dead. We are expressly told they could not enter in because of unbelief. Unbelief brought, finally, destruction on the church and state of the Jews some 50 years after Christ left the world. They would not believe nor receive him as the Messiah, but crucified and killed him. The primary cause why Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple burned, and God's ancient people cast off and scattered over the face of the world was unbelief. Unbelief, we are taught everywhere in the New Testament, is the grand reason why multitudes of professing Christian men and women in every age are not saved and die unprepared to meet God. It bars the way to heaven and makes God's glorious promises of mercy useless and unavailing. He who believes not is condemned already. He who believes not will be damned. He who believes not the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. If you believe not that I am he, you will die in your sins. 
Remember everyone into whose hands this sermon may be heard. Remember and never forget it. It is not so much heinous sin as unbelief which ruins souls. All manner of sins will be forgiven to the men. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses all sin. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be made white as snow. But if a man will not put faith in Christ, he places himself out of the reach of mercy. I am bold to say that even Judas Iscariot might have found absolution if, after his denial, he had repented and believed. The true cause of eternal ruin is contained in those solemn words which our master spoke before the Jewish Sanhedrin. You will not come to me that you might have life. Unbelief is one of the most common spiritual diseases in these latter days. It meets us at every turn and in every company. Like the Egyptian plague of frogs, it makes its way into every family and home, and there seems no keeping it out. Among high and low, and rich and poor, in town and in country, in universities and manufacturing, towns and castles and cottages, you will continually find some form of unbelief. It is no longer a pestilence which walks in darkness, but a destruction which wastes at noonday. Unbelief is even thought clever and intellectual and a mark of a thoughtful mind. Society seems leavened with it. He who avows his belief of everything contained in the Bible must make up his mind in many companies to be smiled at contemptuously and thought an ignorant and weak man. With some, the seed of unbelief appears to be the head. They refuse to accept anything which they cannot understand. Inspiration, miracles, the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Atonement, the Holy Spirit, the Resurrection, the Future State, all these mighty verities are viewed with cold indifference as disputable points, if not absolutely rejected. Can we entirely explain them? Can we satisfy their reasoning faculties about them? If not, they must be excused if they stand in doubt. What they cannot fully understand, they tell us they cannot fully believe. With some others, the seat of unbelief is in the heart. They love the sins and habits of life which the Bible condemns and are determined not to give them up. They take refuge from an uneasy conscience by trying to persuade themselves that the old book is not true. The measure of their creed is their lusts. Whatever condemns their lusts, they refuse to believe. The famous Lord Rochester, once a degenerate and an infidel, but at last found true repentance, is recorded to have said to Burnett as he drew near his end, it is not reason, but a bad life which is the great argument against the Bible. A true and weighty saying, many, I am persuaded, profess that they do not believe because they know, if they did believe, that they must give up their favorite sins. With far the greater number of people, the seat of unbelief is a lazy, indolent will. They dislike all kinds of trouble. Why should they deny themselves and take pains about Bible reading and praying and diligent watchfulness over thought and word and deed, when after all, it is not quite certain that the Bible is true? This I have little doubt is the form of unbelief which prevails most frequently among young people. 
They are not agitated by intellectual difficulties. They are not often the slaves of any special lusts or passions and live tolerably decent lives. But deep down in their hearts, there is no need to make up their minds and to be decided about anything in religion. And so they drift down the stream of life like dead fish and float helplessly on and are tossed to and fro, hardly knowing what they believe. And while they would shrink from telling you that they are not Christians, they are without any backbone in their Christianity. In days like these, we must count it no strange thing if we meet with a vast amount of unbelief in the world. Rather, let us make up our minds to expect it and to see it under the most plausible aspects. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. No doubt it is startling when a young man leaves some quiet, secluded country home and launches on the waves of this troublesome world in some busy town to hear doctrines and principles denied or sneered at which he never dreamed of anyone questioning when he lived at home. But surely this is no more than his old Bible might have taught him to expect. Is it not written there? There will come in the last days scoffers. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Such a young man should say to himself calmly and quietly, This unbelief is precisely what my father's Bible told me to expect. If I met with no unbelief, the old book would not be true. After all, it is some comfort to remember that there is probably less of real, downright, reasoning unbelief than there appears to be. Thousands, we may be sure, do not in their heart of hearts believe all that they say with their lips. Many a skeptical saying is nothing more than a borrowed article, picked up and retailed by him who says it because it sounds clever, while in reality it is not the language of his inner man. Sorrow and sickness and affliction often bring out the strange fact that so-called skeptics are no skeptics at all, and that many talk skepticism merely from a desire to seem clever and to win the temporary applause of clever men. That there is an immense amount of unbelief in the present day, I make no question, but that much of it is mere show and pretense is as, to my mind, as clear as noonday. No man, I think, can do pastoral work and come to close quarters with souls, visit the sick and attend the dying, without coming to that conclusion. Let us now inquire why unbelief is so astonishing. What is there in unbelief which made even the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, marvel? No doubt there was something peculiar and extraordinary in the unbelief of the Jews. That the children of Israel, brought up from their infancy in the knowledge of the law and the prophets, trained from their earliest years to look for the Messiah and to expect a mighty prophet like Moses, taught to believe in the possibility of miracles and familiar with the story of miracle-working men, that they should reject Jesus of Nazareth and not be moved by the many mighty works which he did among them, all of this was truly astonishing and surprising. Astonishing that they should have such privileges and yet make such a bad use of them. Astonishing that the door of life should be open and heaven so near and they should refuse to enter in. But I suspect the Holy Spirit would have us look deeper than this. 
He would have us know that if we sit down and calmly consider unbelief, we cannot avoid the conclusion that there is something singularly astonishing about it, and never so much as in these latter days of the world. Let me try to show what I mean. For one thing, unbelief is a spiritual disease peculiar to Adam's children. It is a habit of soul entirely confined to man. Angels in heaven above and fallen spirits in hell beneath Saints waiting for the resurrection in paradise, lost sinners waiting for the last judgment in that awful place where the worm never dies and the fire is not quenched, all of these have one point in common. They all believe. The rich man in the parable, when he lifted up his eyes in torment and asked for a drop of water to cool his tongue and pleaded hard for his five brethren, had bid an eternal farewell to unbelief. The very devils, says James, believe and tremble. Hateful and hating and malicious and murderous and lying as Satan is called in Scripture, we read that his agents cried, We know who you are, the Holy One of God. Have you come to torment us before the time? But man, living man, is the only intelligent creature who is unbelieving. I say living man advisedly. Alas, what a waking up remains for many the moment the last breath is drawn. There is no unbelief in hell. Voltaire now knows whether there is a sin-hating God. And David Hume now knows whether there is an endless hell. The infant of days, merely by dying, acquires a knowledge which the subtlest philosophers while on earth profess their inability to attain. The dead Hottentot knows more than the living Socrates. Surely, a habit of soul so absolutely and entirely confined to living man may well be called astonishing. For another thing, unbelief is astonishing when you consider its arrogance and presumption. For, after all, how little the wisest of men know, and none are more ready to confess it than themselves, how enormously ignorant the greater part of mankind are if you come to examine the measure of their knowledge. The education of the vast majority of people is wretchedly meager and superficial. Most of us cease learning at 21 and then plunge into some profession which we have little time for thought and reading, and are annually more absorbed in family cares and troubles, and add little to our stock of knowledge. Fifty or sixty years after this, our part is played out, and we retire from the stage, rarely leaving the world a wiser world than it was when we were born. And does unbelief befit a creature like this? Is it seemly for him to talk in a skeptical and sneering tone about the revelation which the eternal God has been pleased to make of himself and the unseen future in that marvelous book, the Bible? I appeal to common sense for a reply. Honest doubt is a fine thing to talk about, and men are fond of saying it is better than half the creeds. But when a man tells you he is troubled with skeptical and unbelieving feeling about Christianity, while he has probably never thought deeply about religion at all, it is impossible to avoid the conclusion that one of the most foolish things in much unbelief is its astonishing self-conceit. For another thing, 
Unbelief is astonishing when you consider its unfairness and one-sidedness. Who has not known that some of the minor facts and miracles of the Bible are the ostensible reasons which many assign why they cannot receive the book as true and make it their rule of faith and practice? They point to the ark and the passage of the Red Sea and Balaam's donkey and Jonah in the whale's belly and ask you sarcastically if you really believe such things to be credible and historically true. And all this time, they refuse to look at three great facts which can never be denied and which no higher criticism can possibly explain away. One of these facts is the historical person of Jesus Christ himself. How can he have been what he was on earth, lived as he lived, taught as he taught, and made the mark he has certainly made on the world if he were not truly God and one miraculously sent down from heaven is a question which those who sneer at Balaam's donkey find it convenient to evade. Another fact is the Bible itself. How can this book, with all its alleged difficulties, written by a few Jews in a corner of the earth, who wrote nothing else worth reading, can be the book that it is, so immeasurably and incomparably superior to anything else penned by man, and hold the position it holds after 1900 years' use? How can all this be if the book was not miraculously given by inspiration of God? Is it not? It cannot be untied. The third and last fact is the effect which Christianity has had on mankind. The amazing change which has taken place in the state of the world since Christianity and the difference at this day between those parts of the globe where the Bible is read and those where it is not known. Nothing can account for this but the divine origin of scriptural religion. No other explanation will stand. Now these three great facts are coolly ignored by unbelievers. They will talk by the hour about minor difficulties in the way of faith, while they refuse to touch the weighty patent facts which I have just named. The difficulties of infidelity are a wide and interesting subject which deserves more attention from the defenders of revelation than it receives. But the unfair and unreasonable extent to which many nowadays concentrate their minds on small, disputable points of revealed religion, while they refuse to look at the great standing evidences of God's truth, is to my mind one of the most astonishing features of modern unbelief. Fourthly and lastly, unbelief is astonishing when you consider how the vast majority of those who profess it drop it and give up at last. Few of us, perhaps, have the least idea how seldom any man leaves the world an infidel. The near approach of death has a mighty effect on consciences and brings into fearful relief the utter superficiality of much that is called skepticism. The very people who go through life sneering and scoffing at Christianity continually break down in their last hours and are glad enough to send for the ministers of religion and seek comfort in the old doctrine of the despised creeds. Some, with a mighty swing of the pendulum, go from one extreme to another, and after living skeptics for years are willing to be read to 
and prayed with and received the Lord's Supper after neglecting every Christian ordinance and despising God's house for scores of years. Wretched indeed must systems be, which prove so useless and comfortless in the hour when comfort is most needed. But the wonder of all wonders is that these failures of unbelief are so notoriously and constantly occurring, and yet men will not see them, and the ranks of skepticism are perpetually filled by fresh recruits. If those who profess to deny revelation generally died happy deaths and left the world in great peace and joy, holding their opinions to the last, we might well expect them to have followers. But when, on the contrary, it is the rarest thing to see an unbeliever dying calmly in unbelief and giving no sign of discomfort, while the vast majority of unbelievers throw down their arms at last and seek for the very religious consolation which they once affected to despise, it is impossible to avoid one broad conclusion. That conclusion is that of all spiritual diseases by which fallen man is afflicted, there is none truly so astonishing and unreasonable as unbelief. And now let me wind up this subject with a few words of kindly advice to all my listeners, and especially to the young. I am no longer young myself. It is 35 years since I first began to speak on pious subjects, but even now I think I know the heart of a young man. I can remember the days when I tried hard to be an unbeliever because true religion crossed my path and I did not like its holy requirements. I was delivered from that pit, I believe, by the grace of God leading me to a book which, of late years, has undeservedly fallen out of sight. I mean, Faber's Difficulties of Infidelity. I read that book and felt that it could not be answered. But the remembrance of the struggle I went through in those days is still fresh in my mind, and I always have a deep feeling of sympathy when I hear the mental conflicts of young men. Some of my listeners, I dare say, are often troubled with skeptical doubts about the truth of Christianity. You are not professed unbelievers. God forbid that I should say this. But you see many things in the Bible which you cannot quite understand. You see not a few men of powerful and commanding intellect rejecting Christianity almost entirely. You hear many slighting things said and contrarian remarks made cleverly and smartly about the facts and the doctrines of the Bible, which you are unable to answer. All this puzzles you. You stand in doubt. Is it really worthwhile to pray in private and to read the Bible and to keep the Sunday holy and to attend the Lord's table? Is it necessary? Questions such as these are the first steps in the downward road. Unless you take heed, they may land you in atheism. Listen to me while I offer a few friendly counsels. For one thing, let me entreat you to deal honestly with your soul about secret sins. Are you quite sure that there is not some bad habit or lust or passion which almost insensibly to yourself you would like to indulge if it were not for some remaining religious scruples? Are you quite sure that your doubts do not arise from a desire to get rid of pious restraint? 
You would like, if you could, to do something the Bible forbids. And you are looking about for reasons for disregarding the Bible. <laughs> if this is the case with any of you, awaken to a sense of your danger. Break the chains which are gradually closing around you. Pluck out the right eye if need be, but never be the servant of sin. I repeat that the secret love of some wicked indulgence is the real beginning of a vast amount of atheism. In the next place, let me ask you to deal honestly with your soul about the use of means for acquiring religious knowledge. Can you lay your hand on your heart and say that you really take pains to find out what is truth? Do not be ashamed to pray for light. Do not be ashamed of reading some choice Christian book. And above all, do not be ashamed of regularly studying the text of your Bible. Thousands, I am persuaded in this day, know nothing of the holy book which they affect to despise and are utterly ignorant of the real nature of that Christianity which they pretend they cannot believe. Let that not be the case with you. That famous honest doubt, which many say is better than half the creeds, is a pretty thing to talk about. But I venture a strong suspicion that much of the skepticism of the present day, if sifted and analyzed, would be found to spring from utter ignorance of the primary evidences of Christianity. For my part, I take my stand on these words of Solomon. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, listening closely to wisdom and direct your heart to understanding, further, if you call out to insight and lift your voice to understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Last but not least, let me entreat you to deal honestly with true religion and those who profess it. That there is such a religion in the midst of us and that there are thousands who profess it are simple facts which nobody can deny. These thousands believe without doubting great truths of Christianity and live and die in their belief. Let it be admitted that in some points these men of faith do not agree in minor points, such as the church, the ministry, and the sacraments, but after everything is subtracted, there remains an immense amount of common theology about which their faith is one. On such points as sin and God, and Christ, and the atonement, and the authority of the Bible, and the importance of holiness, and the necessity of prayer, and self-denial, and the value of the soul, and the reality of heaven, and hell, and judgment, and eternity. On such points as these, I say, all Christians are very much of one mind. Now I ask, is it honest to turn away from these men, and the Christian religion which contempt, because they have many weaknesses and problems? Is it fair to hate their religion and wrap yourself up in unbelief because of their controversies and strifes? Mark the fruits of peace and hope and comfort which they enjoy. Mark the solid work which, with all their faults, they do in the world in lessening sorrow and sin and increasing happiness and improving their fellow men.
What fruits and work can unbelief show which bear comparison with the fruits of faith? Look these facts in the face and deal honestly with them. Systems ought to be judged by their fruits and results. When the so-called systems of modern unbelief and skepticism and free thought can point to as much good done in the world by their adherents as simple faith has done by the hand of its friends, we may give them some attention. But until they do that, I boldly say that the simple old-fashioned Christian religion has just claim on our respect, esteem, and obedience, and ought not to be despised. After all, I must conclude with a humbling and sorrowful remark that we who possess faith and are never troubled with unbelief are not altogether free from blame. All too often, our faith is little better than a mere useless assent to certain theological propositions, but not a living, burning, active principle which works by love, purifies the heart, and overcomes the world. It is not the faith which made primitive Christians rejoice under Roman persecution and made Luther stand up before the Diet of Worms and made Ridley and Latimer love not their lives to the death and made Wesley give up his position at Oxford to become the evangelist of England. We are truly guilty in this matter. If there was more real faith on the earth, I suspect there would be less unbelief. Skepticism in many a case would shrink and dwindle and melt away if it saw faith more awake and alive and active and stirring. Let us, for Christ's sake and for the sake of our souls, amend our ways in this matter. Let us pray daily, Lord, increase our faith. Let us live and move and have our being and deal with men as if we really believed every jot and tittle of our creeds and as if a dying, risen, interceding, and coming Christ were continually before our eyes. This, I am firmly convinced, is the surest way to oppose and diminish unbelief. Let the time past suffice us to have lived content with a cold, tame ascent to creeds. Let the time to come find us living, active believers. It was a solemn saying which fell from the lips of an eminent minister of Christ on his deathbed. We are none of us more than half awake. If believers were more sure and real, and wholehearted in their belief, there would be far less unbelief in the world. I was recently traveling in, in East Germany, and East Germany there has a lot of uh, culture left over from the Soviet Union era, from the, from the Cold War there. And uh, I was talking to some believers there and, and some of the people there, and they were explaining kind of uh, how a lot of people view religion there, and they talk about how a lot of people there, you know, they think they are advanced enough. They think they've evolved to the point where they realize that they don't need religion, that that they're smart enough to know that they don't need God, and they think this is a, a new, a, a new thing that that humankind has has just finally become advanced enough to understand this. And listening to this sermon, uh, it, it really struck me that this is nothing new. This is this is not. You know, it's it, we're fooling ourselves if we think that this is the first time we've tried to pretend that we're too smart for religion. You know, we, we've come up with different excuses why we think 
God isn't real or why we don't need God in our lives. People have been trying to justify why they don't want God in their lives since the beginning of time. Uh, it's 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 nothing new, and that, that's something that kind of struck out to me in this specific sermon. Is is there's a portion in there where Riles it's actually you know explaining that same argument to where people think that they're they're too smart or they're they're too they're, they're at a point in society where God is no longer needed, and yeah, that's that's simply just not the case, and that's something that um, I think a lot of people hide behind. Uh, as as a reason that they think is legitimate when when it's really it's nothing new and it's it's never going to be uh, the truth. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Ed Beckel. Uh, if you like this sermon, please visit our website at revivethoughts.com. There you can find the transcript for this episode and all of our episodes here at Revive Thoughts. If you like this episode, please be sure to share it with someone you know or someone on social media. And while you're on social media, give us a like on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, so you can follow us for more uh, information and more things that we put throughout the week. Also, a five-star iTunes review really helps us to get the word out on Revive Thoughts. This is Troy Angel, and this is Revive Thoughts. I hope you enjoyed that podcast, and if you did, I'd like to also invite you over to the Finding Holy podcast, where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between things that really matter in issues of faith and your everyday holy life. You'll even get to hear about the laundry routines. Go to aahales.com podcast or listen to the Finding Holy podcast wherever you choose to listen to your shows. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.